for those of us that, that are not familiar with the Austin Justice Coalition, we are a local grassroots um, social justice and racial justice organization. Uh, we are crazy enough to believe that um, if we do the work, we can change the world, we can make the world more equitable, we can make the world um, more happy and safe for everybody. Um, and one of our core beliefs is um, in order to do that work, you have to um, uplift the voices of people that are directly impacted. Um, and in that case, we are um, somberly excited to have uh, Ms. Lola Gomez, who is a local photojournalist um, here in Austin that um, actually um, was contracted with the virus and is now in recovery mode. We are so honored to have her join us and, and tell us about her um, experiences with this virus. And um, yeah, I think, I think that's all I need to say at this moment. So Ms. Gomez, you have the floor and then we'll follow up with some questions. Sure. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this. Uh, it's important to, uh, you know, have these kind of conversations with everybody about COVID-19. Um, well, what, what I can say about my, my experience is still uh, an experience. I'm, I'm, I'm still battling this um, situation at home already. Uh, I was uh, hospitalized for, uh, I believe, three days. Um, everything, everything started when, when I was working out there. Um, I'm a photojournalist, as Chas said. Um, and I was covering everything um, that it was about coronavirus and Austin, around Austin and the cities around Austin. So um, press, as you maybe know, um, is considered essential jobs. So photographers and videographers, we, everywhere, not only here in Austin, everywhere in the United States, even everywhere in the world, they are out there um, working on the streets. Uh, even though the uh, newspapers, uh, TV stations and, and reporters are working from home, um, they can work from home, but photographers and videographers, we can, we can do that. We have, to, we have to be out there on the streets. So apparently I got infected when, when I was working. Sorry if I, I lost my, my breath, it's still, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, so apparently I got um, infected when I, was work, when I was talking with one of the um, doctors at the hospital, we think it was between March 8th and March 19th, um, when everything was kind of started here, starting here in, in Austin. Um, our offices were at, um, at the paper, the Austin American Statement. Um, our paper was um, closed their office at the beginning of March, but we, we were working out there. So apparently I got infected when I was working. Um, this part is important to say because people think, or it's true, that you get infected when you are in contact with somebody that had the virus, like direct contact. But as I said in my video uh, from the hospital, I live by myself. I, I, don't, I don't even have a pet. Um, I was not in contact with anybody. Um, every time that we had an assignment, we tried, we, 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 follow the CD, CDC um, recommendations with six feet um, distancing, 
uh, wearing masks, wearing gloves, a lot of hand sanitizer. I had um, Clorox wipes in my car every time that I was in and out. I was cleaning all my car inside because that was my office <clears throat> um, <clears throat> after the office closed. So I was doing everything, everything that, uh, that, that was recommended and still I got infected. So I understand that all doctors and medical um, personnel are working really hard to understand this disease, but we don't know a lot of stuff still. We are working on that. I mean, the medical um, personnel are working on that. And I'm still wondering how I got it. Um, probably I touched something and I didn't notice it or was I, I was walking because one of the stories that we were working that week, I, that week I remember it was on the trail in downtown. It was kind of uh, interesting because the day before I went to the trail working on photos and interviewing people, I was having photos, taking photos of the downtown after um, the restaurants and bars and everything was closed. So downtown was a ghost town completely nobody was there but the trail was full of people and that was for me really shocking because it was like my god everybody's here now i mean nobody's in downtown or the restaurants or, bar, or, or the bars they are here so we decided to to have a story about that and i was taking photos and everything um we interview people saying that they pretty much didn't care about uh, what was going on. It was just for them a simple flu. And they were like, well, if I got it, I got it. And at that moment, I remember I was so mad because it was like, we are not thinking about other people. You know, I consider myself a healthy person. I run, well, before this, I, I, I run every day. I eat healthy and my only issue was um, asthma but I got infected and I'm still battling this I was almost in a respiratory arrest at the hospital because I couldn't breathe so um, to talk about a little bit the about the symptoms uh, definitely started with um, fever I'm a person who never developed fever for anything. Um, so that was my first like, oh, this is not good. So I, I started with fever and then three days later, I think, I, start, I started coughing. It's a dry cough still, I'm still coughing. It's a really dry cough. Um, and my shortness of breath, I couldn't even move around um where i live it's two stories so to go to the rest to the bathroom it was a challenge i had to stop on the stairs to you know breathe and can go to the bathroom and um and i had to uh, make decisions while i was at home um because it was like Every time that I move, I start coughing and I lose my breath. So if, I, if I'm going to have this co coughing attack, 
I, I had to decide to do everything at the same time. So it's just one take. Uh, I went, I was going to the bathroom and then cooking and then eating and then everything. So I could, could go back to my couch or to my bed to rest and catch my breath again. Um, sometimes I got, I had coughing attacks like for 10, 15 minutes, not even medicines like syrups or, uh, those little pills for coughing help. They, they just help a little, but sorry, <coughs> but it was not, um, the whole thing. So, um, the fever uh, disappeared. I think it was like five days later. I started to have like a little bit of fever only, but at that point I was trying, I had, I tried like three times to get tests, but since something that the, the, the doctor at the hospital told me is that since I was healthy, 40 years old, 42 years old, healthy, no medical record, like really severe, some, something real severe, I was falling in the bottom of the list for getting tests. So they were just giving me asthma medicines, like the inhalers and the coughing medicines. People with asthma will know about what I'm going to say, that those inhalers, when you take them, it's middle re relief and it lasts for hours. In my case, at some point, it was 10 minutes only, and I had to take two or three more. So, but it was for me, as an asthmatic person who, who didn't have an asthmatic uh, attack in 20 years at least, for me it was different. I didn't have that, you know, the wheezing thing, I think is the, the name that, the, the sound uh, when you breathe. And it was different. I was like, this is not asthma, but at least this is helping for 10, 15 minutes. So um, the day that I decided to, my last uh, try to have this test, I think it was last uh, Tuesday or last week. And I went to the, this open clinic. I tried Baylor three times and this remedy um, company also they have this telemedicine um, option which, which is really great um, they send me to this open air clinic where they test people but in some cases they decide to send people there to hear their lungs to see if they are really in need of this test I understand the test kit, the kits are really limited so they tried their best, honestly. Um, so the last time when I went there, the nurse, uh, I don't remember if it was a nurse or a doctor, she said, we can treat you here. You have to go to the ER. So I went to the ER to uh, San Davis South in Austin. And they immediately um, take me in. They were waiting for me. Uh, at that point, honestly, it was the most terrifying experience that I had. 
I honestly believe it was, that's it. I remember I was talking with my sister in Florida and I was telling her, we need to tell this to mom because I don't know if I'm going to make it. And she was crying. I was crying. That was really a horrible situation because my breathing was really short. It was like this way and I was coughing and I couldn't stop it. I was doing everything that I was doing at home, but nothing, nothing was working at that point. So I remember my body was starting to get numb, my whole body. Um, you know, when, when you, your hands starting to, you know, to, to, to get like this and, and, and the doctor, I remember, I, I couldn't even open my eyes. I remember the, the voice of the doctor saying, can you squeeze my, my, my finger? And I was like, I don't know if I'm doing it because I didn't feel anything. My body was completely numb because my oxygen level was really like, I think it was in 60 at that point. So of course it was also anxiety. Uh, I don't suffer from anxiety, but in that situation, everybody I think uh, have enough um, anxiety attack, I guess. So they put me oxygen. I remember it was really, fast to the point that I, I felt it was burning all inside. Um, they put two uh, IVs here because apparently when you are in that kind of situation, they need two, uh, you know, needles on your arms just in case. And um, yeah, I remember I started, I started to calm down. And they said, we're gonna test you and probably we're gonna hospitalize you, sorry. So um, I remember that was the other part. Like an hour after the doctor came in and said, we are going to send you home. And um, I think you're getting better and you need maybe you can go home and at that point honestly i was like it's not gonna happen with my little breath i was like nobody's going to move me from here um i live by myself i can't even move at home i'm losing my breath and after what i just experienced this is not going to happen i'm not gonna leave you have to text me test me and let me know what is going on. Because honestly, at that point I was like, if I don't have COVID-19, I have something else and it's treatable. So if I have something else, you have, you have the, the, the tools to treat me and make me feel better. I understand that COVID-19 doesn't have any treatment, but at least I'm gonna know what is going on and, and we are going to know what to do. So he decided to, to let me in and uh, I was hospitalized for three days at the end. Um, they test me. <coughs> um, they said that when you are getting this test at the hospital, you have the results in 12 hours, which is a lot. But I understand that in open air clinics, uh, they take in like 14 days to uh, let you know if you are positive. So um, 
during my time in the hospital, they were really kind. Uh, they took care of me. Of course, I didn't have, I didn't have any treatment for COVID-19, only treatment for my, um, my lungs, for my asthma, and uh, to keep me breathing um, in a regular pace. They were putting the oxygen level every, every 12 hours, I think, a little bit down. So my lungs will um, breathe by themselves, like, you know, they, they had to do their job. So at the end, when they took the oxygen off completely, I remember my lungs were kind of having a hard time, but they respond. And it was uh, all good after that. So um, the doctor explained that to me that um, since I was healthy and I was, I'm, I'm not considering myself an athlete, but I work out every day. So um, I'm 42 years old and, and I felt in the bottle of the um, list for getting test, this test. And I was, at that point, I didn't have any fever. So I was like, without fever, they're not gonna believe me. But my lungs were really, really compromised at that point. So um, now here at home is, as you can see, it's a challenge. Um, I'm still breathing with difficulties. Um, it's not as when I went to the hospital, the recovery for me at least, and I'm speaking um, from my experience because each body is different. For me, it's taking really, um, it's taking time. It's really slow, the recovery. It's really slow. You, you see the difference like in three days, you, you don't see it in hours. So um, I was telling um, people that I have good days and I have bad days. Yesterday was a really bad day. Uh, I was coughing and I, was, I, I had to take more medicines than the, the regular, the usual. And I was doing the same thing. So um, today was, it's a good day. I'm, 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 as, I, as you can see, I'd be able to, to talk and even though it's really hard to breathe, but it's better. So I think I'm getting better. Um, I'm still concerned um, how this is going to be in the future, honestly, for my lungs. And um, well, it's, it's a daily, daily situation. It's a daily uh, battle. Um, also, I would like to say something important because um, media uh, was kind of um, blamed by people that we are creating um, this panic in the, um, you know, in the world, basically. We are not um, creating panic or anything, not even the government, nobody, I mean, not even the doctors that are telling their stories from the hospitals, the battle that they are facing in each hospital when they don't have enough uh, medicines or, or equipment to treat people. This is a serious matter. It's, it's something that your body doesn't understand. It's a new virus. 
and your body doesn't understand what's going on. And, and your body is going to fight that back with everything that it has. And in that battle, you can die. That's pretty much um, what, it, what can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's only a cough, but in my case, it's this. So between the little cough and what I'm having now, everything ha- can happen. So, so Ms. Gomez, thank you so much. And for the people that are in the chat, I would encourage you to just send um, a thank you to her or if you can send emojis to let her know that we appreciate her for being here. Um, and in the interest of time, I'm going to ask you two quick questions. Um, one, you kind of highlighted on. Um, but so, so how are you recovering um, from the COVID-19 virus? And are you aware of any um, lasting health um, um, implications? So at home, honestly, as I said, there are not any treatment for COVID-19. They they don't give you any pills or anything else, like specifically for this. What I'm doing for me, because my lungs for my asthma, my, my history with asthma is I'm having the inhalers that I got from the hospital. In fact, that's something important that I have to say. One of them, they asked me to use my own inhaler because they were short, um, in shortage with inhalers at that point. So I have two at home that I'm taking every five hours or as I need it and a pill for the cough. So to avoid the coughing um that's something that when you start coughing leads you to lose your breath so if you don't cough and you stay still and you rest your body is you know kind of safe but the moment when you start moving or talking you start you know having this so they give me also um little kind of um it's not a machine, it's, it's, it's an instrument or some kind to uh, train my, my lungs to have, you know, the capacity that they had before. So my recovery is staying home, rest, and avoid coughing and lose my breath, honestly. I have to wait until this virus is it's, it's not longer in my body, honestly. That's the only thing that you can do. And, and then we have one more quick question before we get to Dr. Escott. And then um, I invite the panelists. You should be able to see the question and answers. Um, so while other panelists are talking, we can go in and answer them. Um, but for you as a, as a local photojournalist, you normally work through, through your meeting, which is pictures. Um, but, you know, we have your voice today and we're thankful for that and for your health. Um, tell us what you were seeing in the days before you fell sick and what you hope you see out there today. And overall, I think it's really important, um, as I briefly talked to you um, before this, is that, you know, we still have people that think this virus is a joke. Uh, we, we think that people are, 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 are crisis actors. Um, so what would be your, your, your heed, your message to people that um, are still taking this very lightly and still doing day-to-day activities? Yeah, the situation is, you know, when people don't see one of them, like one of them loved ones getting sick, they don't believe what, what is 
you know, around them. Even in, in my own circle, you know, when, when I was um, sharing my experience through Facebook Live, a lot of people were in shock. They, they were like, what, Lola, what's going on? That's what, you know, you see everything at, uh, in the news, but when you see somebody that is close to you getting infected and battling and, and fighting for their life is when you, you start believing. Um, before I got in, um, infected, as I said, I was documenting uh, the downtown and it was the ghost town because it was close, but the trail was full of people. And, and they were like, I'm just here and let's see. And probably, and hopefully, if they get it, they are going to be okay. But if they infect somebody that have problems with their lungs, their hearts, they are the diabetics or you know, they have cancer or something, they can die. So it's a serious, it's, it's something really serious. It's not just a flu. It's, it's something that is new and we're still learning about this. I mean, all doctors and, and, and hospitals, they are working 24 seven to understand this. And every day is something new. They were like, oh, now there are people that doesn't have any symptoms and what's going on you know it's it's a really difficult thing to understand and if the, the experts don't understand imagine people like us like you know we don't we are not doctors so mm. our our part is to follow their instructions if they said you have to stay home stay home because if you if we if we don't flatten the curve we can't go back to our normal life and it's going to take more time and that's something that people that need to understand if you continue going out if you continue to try to have your life normal and you get infected and you spread the, this the, this virus it's going to take more time to get to that to to get to that normal back you know it's 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 simple it's it's just logic so my message is please stay home if you don't have to be out don't go out just stay home and follow the instructions that experts are telling you because this is a serious situation it's not a joke it's not a flu it's not a cold it's not something that even we don't we don't even know well again uh, Ms. gomez thank you so much for joining us hopefully you can stick around for a little bit and again um you should see a little q a thing at the bottom of the screen you can click on that and you can respond to the people that are asking um, you questions as far as your personal experience um and with that i think this is a perfect segue to go over to um what i like to call him the the local um dr fachi um dr mark escott um, he is the interim um, medical director and health authority over at Austin Public Health. Um, yeah, Dr. Escott, just, you know, let people know really quick what your job entails and, and any updates regarding um, COVID-19 today, and then we'll get into a few questions. Well, first, let me say thank you to Lola for sharing her story. 
I'm going to put her in, in the press conference now because she hit all the notes. Um, you know, she, she talked about the challenges of testing and, and some of the other uh, issues that, that we're facing. And I just want to applaud her for sharing her story. Uh, she's absolutely right. People don't understand this completely until it affects them personally. It affects somebody they know personally. And, uh, you know, I think by people sharing their stories like she's done, it really makes it personal for people. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we have, we were hopeful that when things happened in China, people were going to pay attention. We hope when it moved to Europe, people were going to pay attention. We were hopeful that when, when it came to the United States, people were going to pay attention. Uh, it, it's here in town now and people still, still aren't paying attention as much as they should. Uh, so the more people uh, like Lola will share their story, I think the more the message will be clear for them. Uh, so I'm the health authority for, for Austin and Travis County. Uh, basically that's, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the Surgeon General for the local, local area. Um, I, I'm responsible for, for public health uh, reporting, public health uh, enforcement, uh, pu public health guidance uh, for this jurisdiction. Um, so, you know, I've been working closely with the rest of our public health team with Stephanie Hayden, uh, the uh, Austin Public Health Director and uh, our, our, our county cohort also, uh, so that we can have a, a well-coordinated effort. And, and I'll say that uh, we have many people outside of Austin Public Health, uh, from human relations uh, to our human resources, sorry, uh, to law enforcement, EMS, fire. Uh, if there's a department in the city of Austin or Travis County, they are working on this, this effort right now. Um, do you mind if I, I want to hit on a few things that Lola brought up because they are important points. Um, so regarding the testing, uh, she's absolutely right. Early on in this process, uh, we were very, very limited on, on testing. Uh, we really could only focus testing on those who were hospitalized uh, because we were limited to only one lab in, uh, in the state. That's the, uh, the Department of State Health Services lab. Uh, since then, uh, you know, every week that goes by, we've been able to increase our testing capacity. Uh, now we have drive-through testing uh, that's run by Austin Public Health in association with our, our hospital systems. Uh, and uh, there are a number of drive-through sites uh, that, that we're working with ac across the jurisdiction to try to continue to increase the ability to, to test folks. Uh, we want to absolutely get to the point where uh, anybody that has symptoms concerning for COVID-19 can get tested and can get tested for free. Uh, and I, I do want to mention one of the things that we're working on right now uh, that we hope to roll out uh, this weekend or, or on Monday is a, a public registration for testing. Uh, up until this point, we had a platform that doctors uh, across Travis County, uh, Williamson County, Hayes County, our surrounding counties uh, could register folks, you know, if they came, if they called the doctor's office or uh, booked a, a telehealth appointment, uh, these physicians could uh, register them for drive-through testing. Uh, and that's been successful, but we want to be able to test more people. And we want to take away that barrier for folks who, who don't have a regular doctor or they don't have the resources to access a telehealth provider. So our hope is, again, this weekend or on Monday, we'll be able to have a website that folks can go, go on there. They can they can uh, tell us what their symptoms are. And, uh, you know, for some folks, it, you know, may give them just advice 
to you know to to self isolate or you know you could have something else going on. But for those with with symptoms, then we want to organize them for testing. It'll tell them uh, where to go for testing and and a time slot that they can do that. Uh, we are waiting on additional testing supplies, uh, the test collection kits so that we can roll that out and, 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 uh, and do a better job of, of getting people tested quickly. Our turnaround times now are better than they were initially. Uh, right now our testing has been coming back within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a constantly changing target as the number of tests go up, the backlog gets larger and it may take longer. But we're, again, we're hopeful that, uh, that, that lab testing companies will continue to enhance their ability to run larger volumes of tests so we can we can get quick turnarounds well th thank you so much for that and um I, I have a few questions um here that i want to ask you um and i think it's important to ask these with lola just sharing her story um how do people who tested positive to COVID 19 get cleared once they recover without going back to the um into the hospitals and i think that ties in with another question um, many people who are concerned about going into urgent call, uh, uh, urgent care and ER for non-COVID-19 reasons um, because they are afraid to expose themselves. What can you tell these folks who are experiencing other health issues? Uh, so let me take that one first. If folks are uh, experiencing medical emergencies, they, they shouldn't have any concern about, uh, about going to an ER uh, or an urgent care. Uh, the ERs and urgent cares are doing a great job of, of screening everybody when they come in. If they have symptoms which could be consistent with COVID-19, if they have a fever, uh, they are they are getting room right away to uh, to ensure that there's not that cross contamination. Uh, we you know we're not at the stage right now where the the ERs are are super busy at this stage. In fact, our our hospital capacity across the the area right now is about 50%. So it's much lower than usual. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there are only, uh, you know, a few dozen uh, COVID-19 people hospitalized right now, about 70 or so uh, in our area. So it's, you know, the hospitals are not overrun with, with COVID patients right now. And, uh, you know, we want to make sure that, that people are still seeking out care for those things that, uh, that require hospitalization or ER visit. And so the other part of your question again? Um, the other, the other uh, question was, um, how do people who have tested positive for COVID-19 get cleared once they recover without going back to the hospital? So that's a great question, one that we, uh, we, we hear often. Uh, so the CDC has criteria for what we call clinical clearance. That's without an, an additional test. Uh, so the, the protocols for that are it's got to be at least seven days after the start of your illness or three days after the fever stops and the symptoms improve. Uh, so, you know, in Lola's circumstance, uh, the fever has stopped a while ago. Once the cough is uh, significantly better, uh, three days after that, she can be clinically cleared. Uh, and, and we've introduced that process because we simply still don't have enough uh, tests to test everybody to clear them uh, because we're still trying to, to test people who, who may have it. Um, but... We do ha have also a process now where uh, people who, are, who have recovered from COVID-19 can donate blood and plasma to be administered to those who are critically ill. Uh, so for that process, we do need to have a formal clearance test to show that they no longer have it 
Uh, and another test to show that they have antibodies, uh, this uh, IgG uh, is what we call it, uh, which tells us that they have the right, the right antibodies that folks who are critically ill may need. Um, that is still an experimental process right now, but it represents the, the best and earliest hope that we have, uh, particularly for those who are critically ill. Can, okay. I, can I say something about that? Um, because uh, the last day that I was in the hospital, these doctors, uh, they test me with this, um, what did you say, I am? I am. The, the antibody test, the IgG, IgM. There you go. And um, I, I was in the first phase for the antibodies for, for this COVID-19. So they said that they are going to ask me to donate blood in two weeks so they can have the studies and I can help people that is really, really in severe condition for COVID-19. And they are doing this with everybody that is getting out of this COVID-19. So there is hope still. I mean, they are, I mean, all of you are working so hard to, to help people. And this is important information for, for the community to know that the studies are getting farther and, and it's important to let them know that. Yeah, uh, thank you for that, Lola. Um, one more question right now for Dr. Ed Scott and we'll come back. Um, and I think it's important for us to ask this question since we are a black and brown led organization. Um, and this is from Jamar Brown, who is a a, a trusted and uh, cared about community member here. He says, across the country, we are seeing astonishing numbers of people of color who are dying from COVID-19, especially in the black communities. From the numbers of those tested and confirmed for the virus in our area, have we seen a trend here in people of color and the COVID-19 virus? Uh, we haven't. As a matter of fact, the, you know, when we look at, and we just got this data today uh, uh, for the uh, uh, race and ethnicity breakdown, uh, right now, what we're seeing is it's almost exactly uh, uh, consistent with the demographics for the for Travis County. Uh, we, we don't expect that to uh, to stay the same uh, because, as you as you have identified, um, you know it's uh, it, it seems that in other jurisdictions it's more likely to uh, spread quickly in households that uh, that have a large number of people. Uh, and it's more likely to be more severe in those who have substantial underlying health conditions. And we know that, that race and ethnicity substantially impact those underlying health conditions. And uh, we are very, very concerned about the impact uh, that it's going to have on, on this community in Austin and Travis County. Uh, we are working hard with our partners to ensure that, uh, that everybody has access to the testing and that we are uh, encouraging <clears throat> uh, people of color in particular uh, to not wait to get uh, uh, to seek treatment. Uh, one of my concerns is that, uh, you know, we're going to have that ongoing uh, concern about the ability to miss work, the ability to uh, pay for healthcare services, and those concerns may delay people's presentation. Uh, and that's, uh, that's going to be at the detriment uh, of that individual, and it could be at the detriment of their family, uh, because obviously the, the longer somebody is sick in a household, uh, the more risk there is for, for household transmission. Uh, so we really, really want to encourage folks, if they have symptoms uh, and want to get tested, to reach out to us. Uh, if they don't have a doctor, uh, I have a phone number they can call with community care, 
9015, uh, and they can reach out to schedule a, a, a phone visit uh, to do that screening process and, and get them enrolled for testing. Uh, we're going to look at other interventions. Uh, you know, we may need to go uh, and do some walk-up testing clinics uh, in some parts of town to ensure that that we uh, continue to provide access to people. Um, you know, it's it, it's hard for us to to fix the underlying uh, inequities uh, that have have been in Austin for a long time uh, in relation to this COVID-19 condition, but we certainly want to avoid compounding that. Uh, that issue and and uh, you know we we have a, a specific uh, task force related to equity that uh, that Stephanie uh, I think is going to talk about uh, but we we do want to make sure that that folks have equal access to uh, testing and equal access to care. Thank you so much, Dr. Scott. Can you say the number for community care one more time? And I'm going to put it in the chat so people. Sure. Can it's five one two nine seven eight nine zero one five. And there is uh, information on our website uh, with this number and other ways to access care. That's www.austintexas.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Escott. And please stick around. And if you have time, go through some of the Q&A. Um, a lot of these are probably for you um, okay. as we are trying to, trying to get through this virus. Um, and I think this is also a perfect segue to go to um, Ms. Stephanie Hayden, who is the director um, over at Austin Public Health, and Suki, uh, my co-host, my right-hand confidant in the Austin Justice Coalition is going to take over from here. So thank you all again, and if you have questions, please go to Q&A, and we will try our best to get through as many of those as possible. Thanks, guys. Hello, Hayden. Um, before we get into questions, we would love to hear a little bit about who you are and what, you're, what you do here in Austin. And if you can, a brief update about the virus, if you will. Good evening. Thank you for the opportunity to provide an update. I am Stephanie Hayden. I'm the director of Austin Public Health. And um, we are... Um, a department of over a little over 500 employees um, when we are not responding to to COVID-19 um, we are the um, health department for the city of Austin and um, we provide services more prevention in nature we do um, our epidemiologists and, and surveillance folks uh, all year long are um, are looking into um, diseases and outbreaks and so um, this is what my staff in that area do year-round um, but have you know expanded their scope for COVID-19 our um, our department um, staff have been working at the emergency operation center and we have also set up a department operations center and so the department operations center has um, um, only Austin Public Health staff there that are um, providing the kind of on-the-ground um, um, services. So um, we have a, a, um, a medical hotline that staff are coordinating. We have our epidemiologists and um, surveillance folks that are con conducting um, contact tracing for all positive cases in Travis County. 
and we are partnering with Dell Medical School to conduct testing and contract tracing. In addition to that, our case management staff um, are also working in that space as individuals that are quarantined um, call and present with basic needs. Our case management staff are, are, are working with them to address those needs. In addition to that, we have some case management staff that are at, that are at the medical um, hotline as well. And, and as we move through um, our disaster response, we always see the need to set up a social service branch. And we have set up a social service branch and we have um, restructured it in um, three areas. Tools, which are resources and engagement, vulnerable populations, seniors, homeless, group homes, faith-based, and victims of domestic violence. And so we are ensuring that we have an equity lens on all of the services that are being provided in our community. Um, services are community services, child care, behavioral health, and food access. And through that lens is sustainability. Uh, food access, um, we are working with various partners, um, especially the, the um, Capital Area Food Bank, um, as well as local partners to ensure that we are getting, um, collaborating to get food out to our um, community members. And so I'm sure um, quite a few of you may have noticed the, um, the food giveaway this past weekend at Nelson Field. And so the department collaborates with the Capital Area Food Bank in order to ensure we're getting those meals out. In addition to that, we are um, providing uh, services to our homeless um, members in our community. So, for example, the Convention Center is partnering with the Capital Area Food Bank to provide 1,000 bags of shelf-stable food for the next six weeks. We have been partnering with Integral Care because what we have, have really come to know is that when we have crisis that hit our community, we have to be able to have a 24-hour a hotline available for folks to call in. Um, you know, just the fact of, of knowing that, you know, we need to um, stay home and stay safe. For some people, if you're, a, you know, an extrovert and you like being around other people, this has probably been a difficult transition for you. And so, um, and knowing that, Integral Care is offering um, their behavioral health services to folks in our community. Um, in addition to that, the department is continuing to provide some essential public health services. Our communicable disease um, area clinics are still open. Um, we are um, not accepting walk-ups, but we are asking people to call in, and we're doing some telehealth, but for, for some cases they must come in, and we'll provide the sexual health as well as public health investigations for high-risk contacts for TB and HIV and STI patients. Our environmental health um, area is our inspectors are continuing with our food establishments, and we are um, going to establish a, a, a hotline so if people have questions um, from food establishment restaurants, they can give us a call. 
The other thing that just kind of traditionally happens around this time of the year is is our environmental health folks start their um, mosquito surveillance. And so um, we we always make sure that we're we're out, we're visible, um, and we're we're ensuring the sa- the health and safety of our community. Our WIC services are continuing by mail. Um, staff mailed out over 1,300 benefit cards in the month of March, and um, our neighborhood centers have been providing um, have a food helpline, and we continue to provide shelf stable food. We have also started financial assistance on um, yesterday. So, um, so if you contact 311, they will get you um, contacted with our. They'll get you connected to our neighborhood centers. Um, I am going to. I was looking back over the questions that that you all sent earlier. One of the areas that I just wanted to. Um, just kind of address because one of the questions um, asked about uh, places with condensed populations, nursing homes, jails, detention centers. Um, we have a representative from the Travis County Sheriff's Department that is at our Emergency Operations Center. So when Doc, Dr. Escott um, kind of mentioned that, you know, there's so many people that are at the table that are part of the conversations. Um, we have staff from there. Our staff have been um, have collaborated with the jail, um, as well as talk with them about any kind of strategies to where they can um, um, keep folks isolated and um, really ensure the health and safety of the people that are in jails. And I think Dr. Escott did touch on the nursing homes. We have that nursing home task force that are um, working as well. And then with our detention centers, um, Travis County, that that falls under Travis County, and so that is a part of the social services branch. Um, if anyone has questions, we do have our website, as Dr. Escott um, said earlier. It's austintexas.gov um, slash COVID-19, and we have quite a bit of information there. Uh, a few days ago, I believe it was Monday, um, the Dr. Escott um, recommended, as long as CDC, recommended uh, to wear uh, face coverings. And then the CDC has, has offered some guidance about that. And so uh, we are recommending that everyone wear face coverings when they're in public and our essential workers wear them while working. So I'm going to pause because I know I've said quite a bit um, and I am available to answer any questions. Thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you for all of that information. It's so extremely useful. Um, we did want to lean in a little bit about um, a question that I'm going to frame with a little bit of language, something we talked about with Dr. Escott, but I just want to take a deeper dive. So we know that there are environmental, economic, and political factors that have compounded for generations for black folks that puts us at higher risk for chronic conditions, right? Um, mm-hmm. Weakened lungs, immune systems, vulnerable asthma, heart disease, hypertension, diabetes. And data shows a disproportionate number of African-Americans are dying or becoming infected with COVID-19. So, you know, we, we know that members of Congress are writing that without 
demographic data that health officials and lawmakers won't be able to address any inequities in health outcomes and testing that may emerge. And they say, <clears throat> quote, we urge you not to delay collecting this vital information and to take any additional necessary steps to ensure that all Americans have the access they need to COVID-19 testing and treatment. So two-part question, will Austin and Travis County join the few areas that are publishing statistics on COVID-19 based by race? And it's great to acknowledge that there are disparities. What are the plans outside of possibly publishing statistics? So. I think folks like us can use that as well for policy. Um, so um, as, as Dr. Escott mentioned today, um, we did post our, um, our race and ethnicity on our website for um, Travis County as of 5 p.m. today, and it does give you um, a breakdown. On our website, we have um, the the um, the number of people that have been hospitalized. So the the next thing that we're doing is is we are going to um, get the race and ethnicity of the folks being hospitalized. One of the things that we've um, had conversations um, earlier today. Um, as a strategy with uh, with community care, because we know um, because they are such a large organization um, being a federally health um, uh, a federally health let me see FQHC, a federally qualified health care center. Um, we know that our our um, folks that that go to that clinic are uninsured. And so um, we have we talk with them about looking at taking a closer look at, at clients that may either be uh, frequent users of their system in the past or high risk patients. Um, you know, they may have other coexisting um, uh, medical um, problems, and so they are going to. Um, go back and refine their system and be able to um, be more proactive with that population. The other thing is is um, we've, we've talked with them and we are going to be meeting with them this week because there was a request for uh, more testing in the Eastern Crescent. And we understand that they, they did have to um, close some of their um, sites out in the uh, kind of county area, and that was due to uh, the need for their ability to conserve PPE and ensure they had enough staffing. But we are going to work with them on some additional t testing sites in the Eastern Crescent, um, and their their use of uh, telemedicine is is really really increasing, and not they you don't have to have a computer. You can use um, telemedicine. They've been able to get approved the use of telemedicine by using a telephone. So most of their patients are using a telephone. And then the other thing that they've talked with us about is um, they have curbside pharmacy pickup and are mailing 90-day scripts to their clients, especially with chronic disease. And so if a client does need to get in and, and they call them, um, they will go ahead and um, get them scheduled to come into the office if they feel like they have an acute something acute that's going on with them at the time. And so um, we feel like that is really important for us to be able to have those conversations 
with medical providers. Our, um, we have a, it was daily and now it's moving to a Monday, Wednesday, Friday call with um, with our healthcare providers from our major systems. So it's Ascension, Baylor, Scott & White, um, and Seton and St. David's. Um, we have those calls with them and and also um, community care and central health to be able to continue to kind of collaborate, make sure we're, we are communicating across um, entities, and um, this ensures that there is the continuity of, of care that we need. Great. Thank you for that. Um, I have a final question, and then I think we're going to ask you to stick around as well. Uh, so where does Austin and Travis County stand in the trajectory of the virus here in, in terms of the spread and the peak and the decline? Um, I don't know if you'll be able to speak to the last part, but, you know, several folks, there are differing opinions on whether we're a week or three weeks out from even the peak. Can you speak to that a bit? Um, well, the University of Texas put together us uh, a, um, a, a recent report and, and the the data suggests that the uh, baseline epidemic growth rate is um, slightly higher than we assumed um, in March. But basically, our, our hope is is that as we continue to to stay home and um, you know keeping the schools closed and continuing our social distancing that our hope is is that we can delay um, or even avert um, a healthcare crisis in this region because ultimately we want to be able to um, ensure that we, we know we're going to have people that are going to test positive. There are going to be people that are they're, they're going to they must be um, hospitalized, and so we are aware of that. But what we don't want to do is overwhelm our systems. And so that is our ultimate goal is, is to be able to not overwhelm our systems. But in the event we, you know, we get to that place where, because um, at this point we're roughly about 50% um, utilization in our, in our hospital, um, in our hospitals. And so in the event we do get to um, the place where we have um, all of our beds filled, we, um, and, and Dr. Escott mentioned this earlier, we have a plan in place in order to stand up another um, two other facilities. Hey, um, thank you for everything and for being here with us today. It's been um, just so informative and I'm sure that folks have a lot of answers to questions that they've had. Um, but again, please do stick around and uh, check out what's happening in the Q&A and in the chat because there are questions in both of those areas. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we will turn over to Ms. Joya Hayes, um, who is our Director of Human Resources here in the city. Ms. Hayes, will you please give us a brief um, outlook of um, your work here in the city and updates um, on what's happening with the city and employees? They're up, they're in. Well, thank you all for this opportunity to participate in, in this forum. Um, really excited and very proud of the work that is being done by the city employees. Um, despite the clear and obvious threats that are 
taking place in our community. We have a set of employees who continue to go out and do the work of the city. We've got about 15,000 regular employees with another 4,000 temporary employees. And the goal of the city manager in the process as we've gone through this space is to try to ensure that at all costs, we maintain as many positions as possible. So even our temporary employees, we're trying to hold on to them. We're trying to make sure that they have opportunity to maintain employment um, and do the work of the city. As we went into the quarantine space, the stay home, stay safe space, one of the things we try to do is to transition as many of our employees to telework. As you know, government work is not traditional to the, to the realms of teleworking and working from home. But in the first two weeks, we moved almost 6,000 people from the core workspaces to the home space. Um, we have currently employees who are operational and first responders. And we have a very small sector of employees who are in our buildings that are managing the operations that continue. Our DSD workers are some of our administrative assistants in those spaces, 311, 911. And so we do have some employees that remain in the workspace, but we're evaluating to the question that was asked earlier on a weekly basis, um, the opportunity and the infrastructure to send as many employees home as possible. Um, one of the other bigger challenges that we've tried to address is the now reality that many of our employees have children who are in uh, school-aged children and children in daycare who are now home. And so in, in an effort to support those employees, uh, we've created three child care centers just for our essential employees. And so if they're required to come to work and they don't have the opportunity for teleworking, we've created a north, south, and central location uh, where those employees free of charge can leave their children. Uh, we even have some support for some of the special needs children that we know um, our employees may have. And so we're really excited about that. One of the only employers in Austin who's providing that child care to try to assist our frontline employees in managing their children as they are attempting to continue to do the critical work of the city. Uh, we also have a, a program um, for parents who have children that are under the age of four. Um, only in our, in our current programs, those programs can only support children five and older. But we have a child care subsidy program where our employees who meet a certain threshold of income, both in personally and family, can qualify for additional funds to assist them with child care costs. We pay those vendors very directly. Um, we've increased that um, from our, us our usual um, school semester rate of $30 to our summer rate of $100. So those who participate in that, it's about 256 children of employees who actually participate in that program. And so we're giving them $100 a week to help offset some of the cost of childcare um, for their children. Many of you all know, um, as we do our teleworking plan, uh, we recognize that it is a challenge to be home with your children um, and be expected to work. Um, and so we've created opportunities for flexible work schedules and other special schedules that allow parents to address the needs of their children during the workday and still be able to address their work responsibilities in a more broader uh, liberal fashion to ensure some balance in the home. Um, but of course, effective April 1st, um, the Congress passed a Family First Coronavirus um, Act that was implemented uh, April 1st. The city of Austin actually implemented ours retroactive to March 15th to cover employees that we know um, through their work and other means contracted corona. Um, and so ours is March 15th. That is a decision the city chose to make to cover those employees. And for those who may not be as familiar with this act um, as it relates to government, 
Um, we are not reimbursed, but there are two pieces to this act. The first piece is sick leave for employees up to 80 hours. The uh, act allows the city to exempt certain employees in critical positions um, because we can't afford for them to go, but we did not exempt any employees, including our sworn. And so we're optimistic that these 80 hours will help to support any employee um, who meet the six criteria that, that include them getting um, the virus, them taking care of others that get the virus, them being quarantined, waiting for tests and or to support family members. Um, and then the second piece of that act is probably the most landmark component. And that is they have extended uh, FML, which is family medical leave, to allow employees who are not necessarily medically sick, but who have children at home as a result of school closures related to COVID, they have the opportunity to use up to 12 weeks of time with the first two weeks being either their personal time or the 80 hours that the government is providing them and 10 additional weeks of time. There is an IFC um, that will be reviewed tomorrow by council and approved. Um, that was presented by multiple council members that would cover the additional time of that 10 weeks beyond what the government is providing um, that would ultimately allow employees with children the opportunity to take up to 12 weeks off um, to address needs of their children between now and well between uh, March 15th and December 31st. So these are all landmark activities. Um, we've also, as you all know, are a major employer as it relates to benefits. And so we've waived all co-pays for a telehealth medicine um, to allow our employees to receive it. We're also covering all COVID-related illnesses from our benefits packet at 100%. And so we are optimistic to support employees from all of those facets. That's all great. Um, so you, you did mention that some of your employees um, have come down with the virus. Do you have a number of city employees who have been tested positive? I am not at liberty to share the information of employees. You would have to refer to the uh, health department to get any of those statistics um, in terms of the number of employees, but we're, we're not able to discuss that. Okay. Um, so, and we also heard you say that and there are still many folks who are providing critical services to the community. And uh, there's a question from the audience about that and whether those um, folks would be considered for hazard pay um, considering that they have to be out there as essential workers? So we're evaluating that. I think our first priority was the implementation of the act, which just happened this week. The first two weeks, we were just trying to get people out on teleworking. And so we are looking at a multitude of options of what additional services and support we can provide to our employees. Definitely think we're evaluating hazard pay. Um, I would remind you though, with an employee population as large as ours, um, there is a critical financial uh, uh, piece connected to that. And, and so there has to be some complex analysis of what that would cost if we were to look at any type of hazard pay. And so that will take a little longer um, than some of the other initiatives that we were able to implement faster and, uh, and quickly. But certainly I can tell you that we are evaluating that um, and we'll be providing critical information to the city management to make some decisions as to whether or not that's a viable option. Okay. Um, there's a few more questions I'll ask and then I'll I'll turn it back over to Chaz, but in the meantime, if you, the audience, will upvote your favorite questions, we'll be sure to get those asked as well. Um, so in terms of equal employment, which I know the city um, HR is um, has control or is uh, working on, 
Um, what are your recommendations for employers or for yourself? How are y'all dealing with any race discrimination against Asian Americans and people of Asian descent? So as a part of our process in evaluating the impacts to employees, we have uh, weekly in some spaces, depending on our issues, daily conversations with the human resources managers of all our departments to just reinforce um, the expectations of work, not only for those that remain in the workplace, but even via emails and telephone calls. And in any complaints that we receive, and we refuse receive very few um, calls relative to calling this um, virus, you know, the Chinese virus or things of that sort, we've attempted to address that. We've got very strict rules and our, our city policy relative discrimination, harassment um, in the workplace. And so we're continuing to abide by those rules. Our employee relations team remains available. And so if those cases are received, we will investigate them at the same level we would in any other space um, and, and, and make uh, recommendations for corrective action when necessary. Okay. Uh, and finally, I'd like to talk about some of the ADA requirements uh, for employees regarding the coronavirus. For instance, are they required to stay at home if they're showing symptoms? Do they need a doctor's note certifying that they can return to work and that type of thing? Can you give us a brief overview of what it looks like for employees? So if an employee, employees are requested not to come to work if they are sick, period. Um, for our teleworking employees, if they're too ill to work, they simply need to let us know. And we can now at this point provide them the time allotted through the act or if it's not related to uh, corona, we still have people that are catching the flu and other symptoms. And so what we share with all of our employees is that if you have a fever, you need to contact your doctor. Um, your doctor will go through the diligence of determining what is wrong. And if your doctor believes that you uh, may uh, need to test for the corona, that, that re referral is required from your doctor in, a, in order for us to move forward. Um, uh, I think Stephanie can talk a little bit about the center we have for testing essential employees that is available um, to our employees. And so what we ask them to do is to get tested. Um, in spaces where employees are waiting for the test results, but they feel fine. We've had employees who had a fever one day, their fever's gone. We're waiting for results. We don't want them back in that workspace. We're not requiring them to use their personal time. We're allowing them to telework. Uh, we provided hundreds of hours of training classes for them to take online to substitute that time until those results come back to determine whether or not they can come to the workforce. So three things I'm trying to accomplish as we address potential sickness in the workplace. One, to make it painfully clear that we don't want you in the workspace at, for any reason if you're ill and if you have a fever. Two, we want to encourage employees to maintain a appropriate communication with their doctors to ensure that they, they are treated appropriately. And three, we don't want to adversely impact any employee relative to the uses of their time as we await those test results. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you um, for sharing all of that with us today. I know that there are some city folks on here that had those and probably more questions. So I'm going to turn it back over to Chaz and we will address some of those top questions. Thank you so much, Ms. Hayes. Again, and I just want to thank all the panelists. Oh, let me come my video back on. I want to thank all the panelists for, um, for being here and taking time. I know we're a little bit over time, but like I said, we're going to try to run through the top five questions. Uh, definitely want to thank Dr. Escott. I can tell you've been on these Zoom meetings a lot recently. You've been going through answering a lot of questions. Um, and again, Lola, if she's still on, thank you so much for you know, just being here 
given your circumstances. Um, so the, the top question we have um, is from Ricardo um, I'm Gary, and I'm sorry if I'm messing up the name. Um, is there a particular strategy for COVID-19 management and folks that are experiencing homelessness? Stephanie, do you want to take that one or do you want me? Uh, so, yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Um, the, the department has a, uh, inter we have an interim homeless services officer. And so basically, um, her work is everything homelessness. And so we have, um, one, we've been working with a, a person from HUD, um, to be able to provide us some t technical assistance. We have also um, worked with um, uh, uh, some consultants as well. We have, we have established uh, a facility um, in order to um, decrease the number of folks at the shelter because we, we want to make sure to, you know, allow that extra space. And so according to the HUD guidelines, it requires us to um, really try to work to thin out the shelters, and so what we've what we've done is is that we have set up um, a facility, and so we've we've moved, um, and it is a hotel, and we have um, and we've put some folks there in that facility, and um, it's staffed by city folks, and as well as we provide them um, food, et cetera. Um, and then we have some case managers that check on them. The other thing as a part of our strategy is, is that we're working with um, community care to make sure either through their street medicine team or through the clinic that's at the Arch that our homeless folks are, um, are, are being tested. Um, we started a screening tool where we've trained our homeless service providers to be able to um, administer that screening tool, and then they can call into our call center, and then from there, um, our 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 uh, medical professionals are able to help them in that space. We have um, um, city facilities that were going to close have remained open. And so um, some of our recreation centers are allowing our homeless people to come in and shower. Our, um, our library facilities have remained open so um, they can come in and use the restroom and wash their hands. Um, we've set up some, um, some um, porta, porta potties um, at a few locations. We have also um, set up um, hand washing stations at various locations where the violet bag program is, where you can um, they can pick up the trash, et cetera. So, you know, the, there's receptacles out there for them to put their trash in. Um, so we are really, really being as proactive as, as we can. As I said earlier, the convention center has partnered with the food bank to provide some meals. Um, and then we are also going to um, partner with this um, entity called Revelation Foods. If this is approved on the agenda, Thursday, and so they will also be able to provide meals seven days a week to our um, to our homeless folks. And our goal is is that as we um, 
continue to provide case management to them. Our goal is is to make sure that we can move them into um, stable housing. So our case managers will continue to work in that space. And then lastly, if they are positive for COVID-19 or if they are, you know, waiting for testing, then we will put them at our um, ISOFAC facility so they can be there um, until they receive their test results and then they can recover in that space. So those are just um, some of the things that we have implemented as a city to help our, our, our homeless citizens. Okay, and, and I, I guess um, while I still have you there at the tail end of that question, um, when you mentioned vulnerable communities, is the, is the incarcerated population included in that or is there a different plan? Because we have two questions um, that are in the top five that, that are similar, just basically asking um, how we are, are able to check on our community members that are incarcerated and, and what plans we have for them. So if they fall into that, then we don't have to go too much into, into that. But if that's a different answer, we can come back to it. So with, with, this, with the so social services branch, um, there's a community services arm. And within that community services arm, the county is um, is making sure that um, anything that has to do with with corrections. Um, so you know, so they're keeping track of like the, the as you all may have noticed that the um, the number has reduced of the number of people that are in the correctional facility. And so they're, you know, they're keeping up with that piece. We've communicated with them about, um, you know, making sure we get them testing, uh, you know, um, supplies if they need it. Um, you know, we've run um, some of their things through our, our lab process um, if they need it. So for us, we've offered the technical assistance through the health department because that's what we do. But the county um, has been more on the, over the oversight of, um, you know, of anything that's happening in the correctional facility. Okay. Um, thank, thank you for that. And, and for that, we, we will follow up with Sheriff Hernandez and Travis County. And I see Cynthia uh, making a really good point. So we'll follow up with them and try to get some answers back out to the community. Um, the most popular question is from Joe Anderson, who's a good friend of mine. Um, he says, how is the city addressing racial bias by medical providers that they may impact whether or not black people in Austin will be believed in terms of pain they're experiencing or even pain tolerance. How can we ensure medical institutions and providers actually believe black people when studies show they have not or do not? Well, I think one of the things that that has has um, that we have been working very hard really through this entire process and even before this and even before COVID-19 is is working with our equity office to be able to um, uh, really emphasize the importance of there being a, a training component for equity, um, as well as um, being able to have those um, difficult conversations with folks about um, anything that we may have heard in the community about, um, you know, any mistreatment of, 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 of African Americans or Latino or other people of color as they may present. And so really um, working in the space of cultural humility um, and making sure that there are, um, you know, trainings that they are doing um, as well as 
um, any other kind of requirements. We've had um, several of the um, providers and then some of the hospital systems even before this to meet with um, Austin Public Health and the Equity Office just to kind of look at some of their practices, some of their trainings that they um, would would like to offer some of their employees, and they've and they've done those things. Are we there yet? No. As long as we have human beings, you know, it's, it's going to always be some work to do. But at the end of the day, we continue to work on it, so there are improvements in our community. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask these last three questions, and then um, Lola, I see your mom is is on here. Um, so I'm going to give your mom an opportunity to chime in if she would like to. Um, I think I think that's just special. Um, so we have a question about um, is, is there a support system, um, example, shelters and hotline for victims of abuse who may be trapped at home with their abusers? That's one question. Um, are there plans to create more strict and specific guidelines to the existing orders to meet the 90% suggested by the UT research? Um, and last but not least, from my year, um, what information should pregnant people who were are planning to give birth at the hospital know? So I'll take the I'm gonna I'm gonna try to back it up and take the the last one. So as far as um, um, people that are, um, we had that question come up today on our on our physician call, and um, one of the things that the um, hospital let us know is is that as as we are looking at the census of of hospital beds, um, they are not including the um, the maternity beds in their count. So basically, they are really really working to keep their um, maternity area whole by not. Um, adding, you know, um, you know, tra transitioning people that may be COVID positive there. And so um, because what they've recognized is, is that um, childbirth, because there's so much risk with, with childbirth um, just in general. And so the, the, the ability, if you thought about transferring out a person that would have a baby would not just be, would not be recommended. And so, um, so that's, that's, that's one thing. Um, I think you, what was the other, there was another question. Um, are there plans to create more specific guidelines to the existing orders to meet the 90% suggested by UT research? And then the first one was, um, so in any um, information and resources regarding support systems for victims of abuse who may be trapped at home with their abusers? Um, absolutely. Um, we have um, our um, SAFE Alliance, um, S-A-F-E. They, um, they are now part of our social service branch. And, 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 you know, we are encouraging folks to, you know, if they can go online and access their website, you know, if they can, if they can call them. Um, what we really encourage um, folks to to reach out to them because they are a part of our branch, and they are really trying to help as many you know people as they can. Um, and then um, we're working with them to see what is their um, scalability to be ability to expand. But then also um, 
we we also received a, another um, proposal from another entity. And so just working with um, professionals in that space that have that experience um, as well as um, ensuring that that work is through an equity lens. And then I'm going to turn over the 90% to Dr. Escott because I know um, we've been having conversations about that as well. Yeah, Chaz, that's a great question about what else we can do. And we, we are constantly asking ourselves, what else can we do uh, to get to that 90%, that 95%? Uh, you know, the answer is not enforcement. Uh, we, as the mayor said today in a press conference, we, we can't enforce our way uh, to 90%. It's just not who we are as a society. Uh, you know, we're, we're not going to put Humvees in the streets and, and have armed people in the streets. It's just not practical here. Uh, but quite honestly, I don't, I don't think we need to. Um, you know, I think together we need to remind people of the expectations that we have of one another. Uh, we've got to remind people that, that, you know, ultimately they need to ask themselves a question before they leave the house. Is it worth me getting exposed to this disease by going out and doing this thing I want to do? If the answer is no, you need to stay home. Uh, if you don't have to go out, you shouldn't go out. Uh, and, you know, we can, we can get closer to 90% effectively uh, if we are making decisions like that as individuals. Uh, if we're making decisions to, to put that face covering or that mask on when we go out, and we have to go out to the grocery store to get it food for our families. We have to go to the gas station and put gas in our cars. Uh, if we can do those things, if we can really keep those trips out of the house to essential, if we can do the face coverings, if we can uh, remember the, the personal hygiene responsibilities, washing your hands, not touching your face, not going out if you're sick in particular, um, I think we can effectively get to 90%. Um, you know, we've got a lot of people's lives depending on it. And, uh, you know, we are working hard uh, to look at our construction industry. Uh, we know that uh, having, uh, you know, the normal volume of, of construction workers out there working is good for our economy. It's, it's good for them and their families. Uh, but we also need to see about how we can make it safer, safer for them, safer for their families, safer for our community. And we feel confident that we can identify additional mechanisms that we can implement uh, for that business sector and for other business sectors in the future uh, to make them safer as we, you know, look at options of, of turning things back on. I, I can tell you with almost certainly that this thing's not going away in the summer. Uh, it's not going away in the fall. It's not going to go away in the winter. Uh, so I think our expectation is that we are going to continue to uh, look for ways to make things safer so that we can turn things back on. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't expect we're going to be back to, you know, where we were in, in December or November uh, in the next year to year and a half at least. Uh, we're going to have to have some changes. We're probably going to have to have some changes in, in the way we conduct schools next year. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are the things that we're still trying to sort out. As Lola said, you know, we've known about this thing for three or four months. We've still got a lot to learn about it. Uh, but we are working hard because we do want to get people back to work. We do want to get the economy going again. Um, but we, we just can't risk 10,000 lives just in the next four months uh, to get there very quickly. Uh, so we are working hard. We're, we're, we want to get people back to work. 
but again, part of that is, is everybody has to be engaged in the same mission uh, and together we can do it. I, I want to bring up two other things real quick. Uh, first is, is the symptoms that, that folks need to know about. Lola talked about her situation and, and those are really the classic symptoms uh, for COVID-19, the fever, the cough. I can tell you that the more uh, people we diagnose, the less common that, that set of symptoms becomes. Uh, we've seen folks who, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to a group of, of 20 or so young people uh, who were COVID po positive. One out of that entire group had a fever ever, and it was a low-grade fever for a couple of days. Uh, none of them really ever had any respiratory symptoms. Some had diarrhea, some had a headache, some had nasal congestion. Several people lost their sense of smell and taste. Uh, so what we're seeing is that they're seeing a, we're, we're seeing a, a broad range of, of symptoms. Uh, so people shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't feel reassured that they don't have a fever, they don't have a cough, therefore it's safe for them to go if they only have you know, one of the other things. Uh, if you aren't feeling absolutely 100% normal, the best idea is to stay home. And as we increase the testing capability, we want to test all those people with all those symptoms so we can uh, provide people with good advice on whether they have it or not and, and do so in a timely fashion. The final thing that I want to mention is, uh, you know, we had, we had made the decision to close churches uh, here in, in Travis County, and we did so because, because of the risk of having so many people together, uh, particularly that mix of, of old people and younger people and people at risk. Um, you know, the governor's decision was that, that churches are essential, and I absolutely believe they are essential. Uh, but we really have to, as much as possible, uh, choose to worship from home um, so that we can maintain that social distancing. We have to choose to not have family gatherings uh, this Easter uh, so that we can, we can be safe. Uh, we know from other jurisdictions that the, the terrible impact uh, this disease has had on, on families who've chosen to have big family gatherings uh, and that, uh, that disease spread, spread very quickly and has killed many, many people in the same family. Uh, so we need to be safe this, this Easter season, this Holy Week. Uh, and the best way we can do that is, is being apart, but together at the same time, using the, that technology that we have, using the telephone, uh, so we can reach out to our families, but in a different way than we're used to. So, so Dr. Escott, I want to I want to leave on this note with you, and then I want to end it with um, uh, Ms. Gomez, since she's been so gracious to um, be here with us. Um, it, it sounds like, coming from your perspective, um, that I trust. Um, it, it seems like we're going to be in this for the long haul, and um, we, we should we should plan accordingly. Um, so, I, I just want to ask you this because I'm curious. Um, I, I think the list of essential businesses in Austin is rather broad. Um, do you think at some point we're going to have to narrow that um, so we can, um, you know, slowly, well, not slowly, more rapidly flatten the curve so we can get back to opening up the city and city functions? Um, yeah, yeah I, me personally, but again, I'm not an expert. It just seems like we, we have a very broad list, and I just want your opinions on that. Yeah, no, this is, that's a great question. Um, you know, with, with the governor's decision to, uh, to have a statewide shelter in place or stay home order, uh, it, it, it in some ways limits our ability to limit that further. Uh, so, you know, we, we may have to look as a state at, at limiting that if, if we are not successful in flattening the curve as much as we need to. Um, 
you know, we have other methods that, that, that we can implement, such as, uh, you know, if we can't uh, uh, narrow the essential businesses, we can introduce new requirements to continue business. Uh, you know, as I mentioned with construction industry in particular, and ultimately we've got to find, you know, what is that safe way we can conduct business? If it's a restaurant, if it's construction, if it's something else, uh, we're doing the same thing with, with city infrastructure. Uh, we are, you know, masking and, and wearing face coverings here. Uh, we're going to see what the effects are of that. I will say that, you know, we, we, uh, we implemented the, the shelter in place or stay home order uh, two weeks ago today. And it really takes two weeks for us to see the full effect of that policy uh, in, 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 the, in the spread of disease. So we're expecting, you know, over the next week to two weeks, we're going to see if this 75% goal, uh, ultimately 90% goal, is working or not. If it's not, we are going to have to think about how we can take further steps to limit that spread. Because, again, if we exceed that hospital capacity, that healthcare capacity, we have other places we can take care of people. Uh, it's not going to be ideal, uh, and it's going to cause us to have excess loss of life, not only for people with COVID-19, but for people with strokes and heart attacks and traffic accidents, because when we run out of capacity, we run out of capacity for everybody, for everything. Thank you so much. Again, Dr. Escott, um, Ms. Stephanie Hayden, Ms. Hayes, thank you all for joining. Um, and Ms. Lola, since you are the person that's been directly impacted by this, um, and your mom is here, you know, shout out to mom for being on the town hall. We want to leave um, on, a, on any last words that you have. And then after that, um, we'll thank you all for coming and we'll see you for the next town hall. Thank you so much for the invitation. And, and, and I hope everybody um, get a good idea of what is going on and, and, and inform, very informed about all this. Thank you so much. All right, thank you all so much. And we have a town hall on Friday that is going to be um, talking about housing and renters' rights. We have a lot of people that are concerned about their rent since they're not able to work and pay rent. Um, so we will send that information out. And again, thank you all. And thank you again, Lola. And thank you again, um, Ms. Hayes, my favorite Alpha Kappa Alpha. Thank you, Ms. Hayden. And thank you to local um, Dr. Fachi, um, Dr. Escott. And always a pleasure, my favorite co-host and board chair and really my boss, Suki. We love y'all. Everybody stay safe. We'll see you next time.